Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis chapter 3. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made, loincloth, or made, made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and, also, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 12, verses 1 through 11. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 11. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who was one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we are assembled here from so many different circumstances and seasons of life, we gather here to acknowledge that every one of us needs the same word, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you then, humbly acknowledging our weakness, we ask you to enable us to hear that word, to hear the voice of our Savior, to hear the good news that he has for us. And we pray that you would help us to hear it in an ever-growing way, a fresh way, a maturing way, a deepening way. That even if we have heard these words, it seems a million times, that you would enable us to hear it as though we had never heard it before. For this to happen, it must be your work among us. And so we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, for whatever reason in God's providence, I have had a number of conversations recently with some in the congregation, some outside the congregation, that have reminded me of something that is always the case. 
that we desperately need in every circumstance of life, all the different things we face and deal with, we need to be growing in our awareness of God's grace. For some reason, as human beings, as creatures, because of sin, even after Christ has called us to himself, changed us by his spirit, we so often find it difficult to receive God's grace, to rest in God's grace, to appreciate the bigness and the glory of God's grace. For some reason, and I can only begin to analyze what these reasons might be, many people have written much about this sort of thing. We constantly resist it. We think there is somehow a virtue, somehow something good in relating to life as being a matter of our accomplishing, our figuring things out, our doing, our getting things right. Whether it be in how we live, how we think theologically, the quality of our faith, we so often want to make it about us. Well, this morning, as we come to God's Word, as ought to be the case every time we come to God's Word, what we desire to hear is good news. Well, what did we just read? This is the story the accounts of our fall into sin. Our rebellion and Adam and Eve as representatives of the whole human race, our rebellion against God and all of the horrors that have been unleashed upon this world because of our rebellion. Here we have, in its most clear representative form, everything we have ever done wrong. We're going to spend some time on this account. It's a story. Let's remember that. It's easy to spin off into all the theological questions. This is a drama, a story we have before us of our sin. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have for our faith this morning, at every moment in this passage, good news. At every moment in this passage, we have gospel. And I know that for some of us in very particular ways, We read Genesis chapter 3 and you were thinking at this moment, this is the last thing you need to be hearing because of whatever it is in your life. And I understand that feeling. In some ways that feeling is fine. Maybe you've heard this text only theologically developed or only spoken of negatively. But all of us need to be open to hearing in this passage the gospel of Jesus Christ for our faith. We're going to see this in three steps. First, the story of the fall. And for the gospelness of what is happening to really jump out at us, to be clear in in all of its glory, we need to hear this precisely as a story. Second, the consequences of the fall. Well, that's still sounding bad, I know. But in the consequences, there will then be the glimmer, really, I, I hope you'll be convinced this morning, more than a glimmer of the grace of God at the fall. The story, the consequences, and then the grace of God. First, the story of the fall. In many ways, the outline of the story is very simple. There was, in the midst of the garden, we were told last week, Genesis chapter 2, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God told Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree. The serpent, representing satanic evil, that much is clear from the rest of Scripture. It's clear in this text as well. The serpent, representing satanic evil, is just there. And by the way, that is one of the clearest indicators you are meant to be immersed in this text as a story. The serpent is just there. 
All of our questions of why, why is there even a tempter? What is going on? Those questions aren't answered. He's just there, stay in the story. The issue is our sin, our rebellion. So there is the tree that's been forbidden. Do not eat of that tree. There is the serpent tempting them. Adam and Eve, in response to the temptation of the serpent, they eat of the tree. And then in response to them doing what God had said not to do, the curse is unleashed. And for the rest of the passage, verses 14, verse 14 through the end, we read of the consequences of that sin. And those consequences culminate in, their biggest expression is that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They can no longer eat of the tree of life. They no longer dwell in God's presence as they were made to dwell in God's presence. That outline of the story is really clear. Now, you know what we're going to do at this point. We're going to go deeper. But let's be careful. There are many ways to go deeper. We could go deeper by way of psychologizing Adam and Eve. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they experiencing? And we can learn from that lessons about how temptation works for us and how what's going on in our minds when we face temptation. Now, you can do that. There's actually things in the text that tell us at points what Eve, for example, is noticing. And there are fruitful things you can derive from that. That pun was not intended. There are things we can derive from that. But I don't want us to focus there. There's another way we can go deeper. And that is not by psychologizing, though there's useful things to do there. We could do it by philosophizing. And this one, many of us also, I know, are interested in. All right, where did the serpent come from? Good question, but the text doesn't really deal with that. Indeed, as Reformed theologians have pointed out, I think not just uh, accurately, not just wisely, but beautifully, sin and evil do not make sense. And part of the goodness of what the Scriptures proclaim is that evil really is evil. And what we want is answers that will then get rid of the evilness of it. And so there's something good. Here we are philosophizing. It's what we're not going to do in the sermon, okay? There's something good about evil not making sense. It's an invader, and God is going to defeat it. All sorts of philosophical questions we could do. Let's not do those either. Here is the focus. And I, where are we getting this focus from? Well, I'm convinced, at least, I hope you'll be convinced, that Genesis, from beginning to end, is a drama. It's a story. And so if you're going to appreciate what is happening in any given text, you need to appreciate it as being part of that story that is moving. So, Let's go deeper into Genesis 3 as a story. Two questions to do that. First question, and a bunch of you thought of it. Now, those of you who have grown up Christian and you're a little older now, you know you're not supposed to think this. But the 12-year-olds among it thought it, and you guys are right. This is a really important question. Why is the tree even there? What was God thinking? What, I mean, wouldn't this whole thing have been avoided if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil just weren't even there in the first place? Let's deal with this, right? Good question. Why is the tree even there? Now, in the way of psychologizing or philosophizing, all of that sort of thing, you can get to some answers that are very helpful. This is a probationary time, a time of testing. God wants Adam and Eve to grow in maturity as human beings. We saw in Genesis 2, there is a future that remains for them. And the tree represents that future. 
and they are to grow in maturity. And one day, remember God said, you may eat of all the trees. We have a reason to think one day they would have had access to that tree. It represented growing in maturity. Or we can say it represented the freeness, the use of their will in choosing to be faithful to the Lord and loving him and serving him. All of that is helpful as well. Let's say this most of all. God, you know, when, okay, when we, when we say, why is the tree even there? The objection we're picturing, and if you are 12 years old and you thought this, it is not your fault, all right? This is a good question to have. Because we often portray God as just setting up a whole bunch of no-nos. Like all of these things all around Adam and Eve just to trip them up. As though the tree is there just to trip them up. And we often relate to God in that way. But the creation story is marked definitively by permissiveness. By what is allowed. By the openness of the creation. There is only one no-no. The rest of creation is all open to them. God put Adam and Eve together and said, multiply. Permissiveness. God created a creation full of things to enjoy and explore and do. Permissiveness. God's whole demeanor, and brothers and sisters, we must learn from this. Because we do not think and speak of God in this way. So often in the Christian life, we think we're going to be better by being extra restrictive. God's character, his created intention is openness and permissiveness. But there's even more we need to see with what the tree represented. It's simply this. Life according to God's word. We ought to think of the trees sacramentally. The trees were not magical or mechanical. The tree of life was not itself the source of life. It was a sacrament of the promise of life. God, the creator alone, is the source of life. Likewise, for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it simply represented was this. Live according to God's word. Live according to what God has said. And now, this is where you have to think deeply. It is God's word that called creation into existence. It is God's word that gave shape to the world. And so when God places a tree that says, live according to God's word, what he's saying is, live. Live with the grain of reality. That the only thing that can mess this up is not living in accordance with God's word. Because it is God's word that shaped reality itself. And so you see, the tree is not this random thing to trip them up. It represents the very way of life. It is the thing that warns them from the only thing that would destroy everything. Because the word that spoke to not eat of the tree is the word that called the universe into existence. And that word is good. And so all God is saying is, live life. Live life according to his word as it was made to be, as it was created to be. In other words, the tree represented ultimately all of that permissiveness. The goodness of the creation that God had made. And it is that path, that life, that we as humans rejected. That is the darkness of what we did in rebelling against God. And that is the drama of what happened. Now why do you need to hear the story in that way? Because this is what then the rest of the story is going to answer. All right. That, what was the first question? Why was the tree even there? It represented ultimately life. Second question in the drama of the fall. What should Adam have done? 
we say, okay, the story went wrong. It didn't go the way it was supposed to go. We know that. All right. To really feel, to enjoy, delight in, to, to, to see sparkle the color of what is happening in this drama, ask, how should it have gone? Well, if, if, if we ask that immediately, I think a lot of us just think right away, well, Adam shouldn't have eaten of the tree. Okay, true. But now hold on. Adam's there with Eve. Eve is being tempted. Eve's about to eat of the tree. What should Adam have done? Well, should he have stopped her? Should he have spoken God's word faithfully instead of what the serpent was saying? Was his responsibility at that moment to represent the word of God? Well, these are all good, good things to be thinking about. Then Eve does eat of the tree. And interestingly, the New Testament makes, I think, rather clear that this is not quite yet the decisive moment. Paul tells us Eve was deceived. And I think a lot of us hear that as Paul's being hard on Eve. I think he's defending Eve. Eve was deceived. It was Adam who was given the original prohibition. And it's Adam who's eating of the tree, we are told, brought sin into the world. So now that Eve has eaten the tree, what should Adam do? And Here's where the story is exciting. What should Adam do? Well, hold on. There's a serpent there. Satanic evil in the garden, has invaded the garden. Adam is told to guard and keep and tend the garden. As a serpent invades the garden, what should Adam do? It would seem he should fight the serpent. He should fend off this evil that has come in. It was the task God just gave to him. By the way, all right, some of you have heard this a bunch of times, but I gotta do it again. A little bit of a pet peeve of mine. And it's all the fault of all of the children's story Bibles that have pictures why do we picture a snake? You know, later on, what is the curse going to be? That he has to go on his belly in the dust. Well, okay, then what is he now? What did Revelation 12 just say the ancient serpent is? A great dragon. Now, is that just symbolism? Quite possibly. You know, good 20% chance, I think this was a dragon, okay? We don't know. Serpent fits all of it. All, all of the reptilian monster would be a serpent, Okay, here's the dragon, the serpent, the snake, if you must. Adam probably should have fought it off. Or some would say, now that Eve has done this, Adam should have offered himself to die in Adam's place. Adam, having not yet sinned, should have sacrificed himself in Eve's behalf because of what was about to be unleashed. We don't know. It's all speculation. But do you hear all of those possible answers as being the answer God will later give? That what will he one day send his son to do? To set the world right, to fight satanic evil, to drive out the dragon that has invaded his creation. Revelation 12 depicts a war. Ultimately, to die on behalf of his bride, the church, so that she might be restored to the life of the new creation. You see, as we stay in the drama, in the story, we ask, what should Adam have done? That whole world of what God actually would later do opens up. In fact, it is that whole world that, secondly, we see in the consequences of the curse, or the fall. So we have the drama of the fall, where we've spent most of our time. Now, flowing from that, what are the consequences? Well, I want to outline them for you. I'm not outline. I'm going to list them for you, and I'm going to work backwards in the text. So the way the curse goes, God speaks to the serpent, and then he speaks to Eve, and then he speaks to Adam. I want to work backwards. What is the consequence God proclaims to Adam? He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
And then there are two main things. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life because of thorns and thistles, meaning the task that Adam was given is now going to be resisted by the creation. Work is not going to be what it was made to be. Something's going to be wrong about it. And he says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The culminating curse is the sting of death. The reality of death as a foreign invader in God's good creation. And that is, by the way, what God said would happen. You shall surely die. The curse upon Eve, the woman. Verse 10, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So childbearing, which was a good gift that God gave, is now cursed. It has pain. And then in the rest of the verse, there will be conflict between husband and wife. Again, a relationship given that was good will instead be marked by conflict. Now, notice a theme in all of those. All of them are a matter of God's good creation being distorted. Now, we don't have time to talk about this in detail, but I want to at least gesture toward this. When we get way further on in the New Testament, in the gospel, this requires wisdom. We constantly must be distinguishing what is the good thing of God's creation and what is the distortion. There are, there are two dangers. There's the danger of simply not worrying about the distortion. There's also the danger of rejecting the good thing that's been distorted. And from the beginning of the curse, it is clear. God's creation is good. A bunch of us have been sick the last couple of weeks. That's been the theme through Genesis 1 and 2. The creation is good. And what the curse does is it distorts that good creation. All right, continue to work backward in the consequences. Then we have the serpent representing satanic evil and see both uh, the serpent and the satanic evil behind the scenes are being spoken of here but the focus is very much on that satanic evil the demonic darkness the dark power that is present here in the garden because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life and then here is the key verse genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord announces enmity. My favorite way to translate this is eneminess. Not a word. Enemies, being in conflict. He announces to the serpent, there will be conflict between the woman and between the serpent. And then he says, between your offspring and her offspring. And there is stuff going on in the grammar that makes it clear, we don't have time for all the details, that this is an individual being spoken of. And there's something that this individual will do. He, that is this individual offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, that is the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. All right, we have to fast forward a bit here. Bruise. Some of you may have grown up with this verse in the NIV, and it speaks of crushing the serpent's head and the bruising of the offspring of the woman's heel. Why does the ESV say it this way? Well, here is the tension, and the debate is good. Both sides have a good point to make. It is the same word in each case, and the ESV really wants us to see that it's the same word. I think that's good and wise. But there's places where that then means we have to do some work because it is a word that means different things depending on the context. So it is the same word, but it is a word that if it's referring to a heel is very different than it's referring to a head. 
The best analogy I can get to you to make this clear is if you think of striking with a hammer, right? You could have the very same word, striking with a hammer someone's heel versus striking with a hammer on a serpent's head. One will injure, one will destroy. We are meant to hear both things happening here. There's a, there's a commonness. There's something that the offspring of the woman is suffering that is parallel to what's happening to the serpent. There's suffering in it and they go together. But the point, the picture is of the defeating, the crushing of the serpent. So God promises. Oh, I wasn't supposed to use the word promise yet. God curses, but we're all hearing it as a promise. Yes, God curses by saying, one day a child will be born who will defeat the serpent. That one day someone will be born to this woman who will crush the serpent's head. That this evil will be defeated. And congregation of Christ, with this verse, Genesis 3.15, the entire rest of the story of the Bible is inaugurated. Revelation 12, our New Testament reading, describes the story of the whole Old Testament as being a dragon waiting to devour a child who is going to be born. And this is not just random imagery. First of all, it was a dragon in the garden, okay? Serpent, snake, I don't know. Dragon to devour the child. The whole story of Israel then. Why in the book of Genesis are there going to be so many stories about a miraculous birth? Someone who could not have a child and God gives the blessing of a child because of this promise, the offspring of the woman. Why are there so many stories in the Bible where the bad guy, Pharaoh, Queen Athaliah, King Herod, tries to wipe out a whole bunch of children to stop someone from being born because of this promise? Because the serpent, the Satan, the dragon, he knows one day to this line of promise, a child will be born who will defeat him and he wants to stop that from happening all the way to the point of putting the Messiah to death on the cross thinking he was winning, keeping this from happening. But he did not know that was simply the bruising of his heel by which his head would be crushed. Why are there so many stories of head crushing where the bad guy in the Bible dies with their head being crushed because of this promise? This is the story that unfolds in the, or the promise that unfolds in the whole story of Israel all the way to the coming of Christ. And at any point in the Bible, any book of the Old Testament, any place you are in Scripture, to read that passage rightly, you must read it as part of this one great story of what God is doing. And as we do that, what a joy and delight it is to see that glorious unity of Scripture unfolding, the one story, the one drama of what God is doing beginning with this verse. I love to dwell on this point. We're going to dwell on it about two minutes longer than we should this morning. I love to dwell on this point, the unity of Scripture. Here, in that one story, is the beauty of God's Word. To commend it to you for your faith. To encourage, to strengthen. As you see connections you had never seen before that no one human being could ever have put together as the Holy Spirit guides the, the recording of His Word. Here we have the glory of Christ. That whole scripture, that whole story all converges on him. Every one of these themes, everything God has promised, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, Christ fulfills all of it. And here we have. I gave away using the word promise way too many times earlier. I was supposed to wait till now. Here we have, in the middle of the curse, a promise. Here you have, in the middle of the curse, God's 
grace. And this is finally the third thing we must see this morning from this text. The grace of God after the fall. Brothers and sisters, we must be open. And I don't, I don't even know, I can't describe what this even means psychologically or spiritually, okay? You have to figure it out for yourself, I guess. We must be open to always being challenged in new ways by God's grace. We must be open to being surprised by God's goodness and grace. This is the story from Genesis to Revelation of God's people constantly being surprised by the bigness and the broadness of God's grace. Every single thing possibly represented in this congregation, this gathering of people, every single thing any of us could possibly have had in our minds that we want God's word to address, that we want the scriptures to speak to, that we want what happens today to be relevant for, every single one of them is answered by this. You need to, in fresh ways, be open to, be challenged by God's grace. For whatever reason, as I said in the introduction, we constantly find ways to resist this. But for all of us, it is what you need. You say, in times of guilt and shame, you're aware of particular rebellions or you see the consequences of your sin or something long ago that you still feel the shame of it. All of that God's grace must speak to you in a growing way, an all-of-life way toward the new creation. But it's not just guilt and shame. Some of us right now, what's, what's got us, what's gnawing at us, what's frightening is God's providence, things happening in life that feel dark and fearful. What do you need then? Well, a lot of things, to be sure, a lot of things from Scripture. But one of the main ones is simply this, to be persuaded of God's goodness and grace. And to be persuaded of His goodness and grace in a way that it's bigger than, beyond the specific thing you have in front of you at the moment. Others of us, it's temptation. It's a path being considered. It's an option looming larger than it should. It's things of this life being worshipped, being entered into destructively, recklessly, foolishly. What do you need then? You need to be beat up. Well, maybe sometimes. What do you need then? to be persuaded of the goodness and the grace of God. The goodness of your Creator, that the way He commends to you that is good, truly is good. And you need to feel all the way down, not just in your head, but the goodness of that goodness. Well, how do we get there? How do we have that all the way down conviction that the path that God commends just is the path of life and the path that He forbids just is the path of self-destruction? How do we get there? We don't want to just be fighting it in our minds, right? We want it to feel it. We want it to overflow that, yes, this is good. How do we get there? It's this, the grace and the goodness of God. Why is this so difficult? One reason I want to diagnose, forcefully if I may, is tendency is in Reformed theology, whether you've grown up with it, some of us haven't grown up with it have this tendency, some of us new to it because of the way we came into it have this tendency, to summarize it in this way, to turn the doctrines of grace 
into the doctrines of God's stinginess. To turn the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and salvation and his, his lordship over all things into the doctrine of God's limit, limitedness. And then it's all about the anxious figuring out, am I part of that? Is that mine? Is that for me? And then it's all the anxious figuring out, are those promises for me? Am I as, as limited and stingy as God's grace is, then is there enough for me? When the whole point, the whole theme of the doctrines of grace is the bigness, the relentlessness, the pervasiveness, the wideness, the effectiveness of God's grace. That no one's sin is too great, no one is too far lost, no one is too far gone for God's grace to reach her or him. That is the point. And somehow, whether it's, I don't know if it's a, well, I don't want to go into more detail. I have speculations. But somehow we've arrived at this way of speaking of specifically reformed doctrines that have made us fearful and anxious. And we need the way the scriptures speak to confront that. So, in our remaining time together, let us enjoy the clarity of God's grace in this story, in this text. Adam and Eve have sinned. What did God say would happen? On the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And they're not dead. Now, they are spiritually, right? So there's all sorts of ways that what God said is directly happening. And it's quite possible that's what he intended all along, was that spiritual death. But nevertheless, is there not a surprise already there? They're not dead. Adam and Eve have rejected God's word. That's what we said, the tree represented life according to God's word. What is it that pursues them in the garden? God's word. God speaks. God seeks them out. God draws them into a pattern of confessing what they had done, drawing them to himself. This is God's character on display. Here we are in some of the most ancient words you could ever have access to as a human being. Here we are, the most ancient testimony to who the creator is. Here we are at our darkest moment of rebellion. And it is grace, beginning, middle, and end. When God speaks, what does he say? We say, well, it's cursing. Sure. Okay, let's do this. What's the curse on Adam? Adam? By the sweat of your brow, by thorns and thistles, you will bring forth fruit from the ground. Whoa. Did you hear that? The ground will still bring forth food. The creation is still going to provide for them. What is the curse upon Eve? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's still going to be childbearing. There are still going to be more people. Indeed, what is that moving toward? But the promise of one day, one of those people who will be born being the one who will defeat the evil that has invaded God's good creation. Indeed, of course, we saw most of all right there in the language to the serpent was the promise of the one whose heel would be bruised. The one who would be injured to bring about that defeat of the serpent. And you see, the story then ripples with echoes eternally of just what that will be. You see, the story does not just point forward to what Christ would do one day. This account testifies pointing upward to who God is, 
to the Word, the wisdom, the Logos of God, the eternal Son of God, the one who would one day take on flesh in Christ eternally. The Word, the Word that is speaking, that Word is eternally the one who is righteousness and justice and grace and mercy eternally as the Creator. And He, seeking Adam and Eve by His Word, places at the entrance to the garden a cherubim with a sword. Hold on. There's an entrance to the garden. Why is there an entrance to the garden? Oh, God's not done with this plan. He's going to bring his human creatures back to fellowship with him. But at that entrance, there is a sword. And that's right. The path back in requires falling on that sword, being slain. The path back in is only the path of death. Well, now we're stuck. Except what does God also do? He provides for them skins. Now to provide skins, what must have happened? Now here we must be careful. We're in the realm of illusion, of echo. This is not directly said. But for God to have provided skins, what must have happened? Those animals died. And there is the promise. The Son, the Word, the Logos, the wisdom of God, the eternal character of our Creator saying that the day would come where at the cost of Himself, He would be the one who would restore His human creatures to the entrance to that garden. And in all of this is the announcement, the revealing, the proclaiming all the way down of the very character of the Creator. That there is no dark, mysterious, mere power or control behind Christ. But Christ is the revealing of who the Creator is. That it is the love of God that is made clear at the cross of Christ. And that reality of God's grace, pervasive, beginning, middle, end, through the whole story, is what comes out so relentlessly, even at this moment of cursing. Now, hear that as God's covenant word to you. Hear that as God's word of relationship, word of having bound you to himself by his covenant promises, his word to you. That you do not relate to him by performing, by earning, by deserving, by figuring out, by being good enough, by accomplishing, by piling anything up. That at our moment of greatest rebellion and darkness, he acts in grace. And he does not change. That is what was proclaimed at the cross And it is who he is for you right now. What were the three categories we said earlier? Guilt and shame. This is who he is for you right now. Dark providence. It's easy to say, Pastor, that's easy for you to say. It is not easy for me to say. In the midst of dark providence, this is who God is for you. In the midst of temptation, What can motivate us to avoid the path of destruction is confidence in this goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, what a joy to see the very shape of the Son, S-O-N, the very shape of our Lord Jesus Christ present at this moment with Adam and Eve, the very same shape he had at the cross and resurrection, the very same shape he has for you as his gathered church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we plead with you to deepen our faith. Teach us 
truly to rest in your goodness. Teach us truly to hate and flee from sin, motivated by our confidence in your goodness. And teach us to rest in your grace. You know in ways that go far beyond our ability to even know ourselves. You know our need for this. And so we pray for the continued work of your Holy Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.